I can remember my very first Grand Prix, which was the Monaco Grand Prix, sitting in a Brabham Formula One car, knowing my dad had won that race in 59. Any mistake, you were off and it was going to hurt. And obviously I went through the 94 Imola event with Roland Ratzenberger, my teammate, who passed away that weekend with Senna. They were racing at Dijon, literally side by side, corner by corner, and they were like glued together. It was just the most awesome racing. Senna, Prost, Mansell, Piquet, Patrese, Bootsen, just fantastic drivers, fantastic period, and very lucky to be a part of it. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd, brought to you by Chubb Insurance, expert insurers of your most valued possessions, established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. In this series, we talk to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of people who inhabit this wonderful world. Thank you so much for all your fantastic feedback about the series so far. I know loads of you have only just discovered the Chubb Interviews and you're still catching up. Some highlights include motorsport legend Derek Bell talking about his life in the sport and his friendship with Steve McQueen. We have the remarkable CeCe Muldoon, who gave us a real insight into the world of judging at Concours. Ace restorer Simon Thornley and one-time fastest ever human on wheels, Richard Noble. Now, in this episode, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of Formula One, which began at Silverstone way back in 1950. It really is a birthday worth marking. We have a fab special guest to help us to do that shortly. More on him in a moment. Chubb Insurance is a main partner of the Concours of Elegance at Hampton Court Palace, happening September the 4th to the 6th and there'll be a very special display there in celebration of 70 years of F1. To help me negotiate 70 years of top-level motorsport in under an hour and talk to our special guest, we welcome back Sunday Times driving.co.uk editor Will Dron. Will, how are you? I'm very well, Jodie. How are you? I'm very, very good, enjoying this sunshine, being out a lot, getting behind the wheel of my cars, which has been great, out in the garden. So, yeah, summer is definitely here, which is wonderful. And you? Yeah, likewise. Um, been getting behind the wheel of many new cars, just trying to enjoy you know, access to the roads again. I know. Tell me about it. It's been quite frustrating, but at least we've got that ability to get out and about. And of course, with you driving some wonderful new cars, right? Is there anything that's kind of jumped out recently? I think I mentioned it in the last podcast, but there was a Mustang convertible, which was fabulous, five litre V8 engine, and that just sounds great. Most of the cars that I'm driving these days are electric or what they call electrified, so they're adding sort of hybrids and things like that. Things are getting quieter, much like, I suppose, F1. It surely is. I know. And so this is what this whole podcast today is celebrating Formula One and their 70th anniversary. And you're obviously a huge F1 fanatic yourself. But from its humble beginnings, it has to be one of the most popular attractions on the planet. Why do you think that is? It's the ultimate team sport, in my opinion. Everyone talks about the driver, and the driver is the sort of figurehead. But actually, there's, you know, 300 people who are working on this car, possibly even more than that for the bigger teams. Some are based at the HQ, could be anywhere in the world. Many of them travel to all the circuits. 
they call it a circus, don't they? It's like rolling up with truckloads of stuff and unloading it. And, and actually the driver in the car is the icing on the cake, but it's all the work behind the scenes that really fascinates me. And that kind of will never change, despite the fact that the sport itself is changing considerably at the moment. It's really interesting to see where it's going to go and and evolve as we've seen it from the fifties. Well, not personally from the fifties, I have to say, <laughs> and all the and all the changes that I'm has not quite gone that through. Old, you know, you know <laughs> exactly. You know where it's going to go. What the future for F one is going to kind of entail. I think it's going to be quite an interesting next five ten years. Fascinating. I wish I had a crystal ball. There's so many incredible names associated with the sport that I, you know, are integral part of especially my life like my um my cousin is named after Erton and his his middle name is Erton but they're so part of our lives even people that aren't necessarily big F1 fans or, or motorsport fans you know they know these names they know Fangio they know Moss they know Senna you know they really really have captured you know so many hearts do you think the popularity of the sport is as much to do with the bravery of these drivers Bravery is a huge part of it, isn't it? Especially in years gone by, the sport has become much safer, you know, through the 70s and 80s and 90s, thanks to people like Sir Jackie Stewart and, and so on, really pushing the safety issue. But I think you still have to be brave. I don't know if any F1 drivers would consider themselves brave, really, um, even back in the early days. It's produced some incredible characters and such a sad year to have lost Sterling Moss as well. What a man, my complete and utter hero. Indeed, he was fantastic. And back in the day, in his era, you were a multidiscipline driver, weren't you? You you drove an F1 and then the next weekend you might be driving a saloon car or... Yeah, you know, doing the Mila Mila. Mila Mila. I mean, what did he average 100 miles an hour or something, you know, over a thousand? Unbelievable. The mind boggles to think about that, even doing it in a modern car, but in, in one of those old cars in the 50s. Amazing. Some of the drivers in those days, they literally used to work all week and then get in their car, drive in their race car to the racetrack, then race that car and then drive back home in it. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, some amazing stories. Um, but anyway, enough of us going on and kind of reminiscing. It is time to introduce our special guest for our 70th anniversary celebration. And I can tell you, he is a perfect choice for this occasion. He comes from basically racing royalty, a family who have been at the heart of motorsport and F1 for over 60 years. Not only that, he belongs to an elite group of drivers to win Le Mans. He's an Aussie, we love our Aussies, and son of one of the most talented and successful F1 racers of all time, Sir Jack Brabham. So our wonderful guest today is David Brabham. How are you? Good morning, Jay. How are you? I'm very good. Well, welcome to the Chubb Interviews. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. David, hi, it's Will Dron here from the Sunday Times. We actually met a, uh, a long time ago. You probably don't remember, but I, it was during your Simtech year in 1994, and I, I met you at Silverstone as a little boy. Um, oh, wow. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Well, reconnecting. Um, we tend to start off our podcast talking about the influences. And I suppose in your case, it should be fairly obvious where your influence and your love of racing came from. Yeah, I guess I took a slightly unusual route to motorsport because obviously with my father's history, it's very easy to think, oh, dad stuck me in a go-kart at the age of four and kind of off I went. That couldn't be further from the truth. He did everything possible to actually keep me away from motorsport, to be frank. 
you don't send your kid to an agricultural boarding school in the middle of Australia if you want him to go motor racing because you know, we had a farm and I was being groomed to be the farmer. And I loved sport. I loved driving on the farm. I just loved the thrill of driving quickly and on the edge. But I never really thought about getting in the car and going racing like the rest of my family did. So it wasn't until I left school at 16, went to a college to learn about wool. But during that time, I went to America for about three months, went and saw my older brother, Jeffrey, who was racing in Indy cars at that time. And I started to sort of fall in love with motorsport then and saw a go-kart sitting in a workshop. There was a mechanic working on it. And I remember, I still remember this very clearly because I I sort of asked the most stupidest question, do people race go-karts? Is that what your first question was? That was my first question. (laughs) Do people race go-karts? And the bloke looked at me, my brother's in the car doing a seat fit, and uh, he says, are you adopted? Yeah, he's literally disowning you. He could not believe that came out of my mouth, but it was true. That's how far removed I was from racing. And so when I went back to Australia and sat down with my dad and said, look, you know, I really like to go on a go-kart, you know, his jaw just dropped because he never thought those words would come out of my mouth. To begin with, he wasn't that helpful. So I actually convinced my next door neighbor who I went to school with, we built one, but it was, you know, just a play one. And we went off to a go-kart race, had a look, bought a second-hand go-kart together, and uh, that's where it all started. So the inspiration actually came more from my brother, Jeffrey, than it did from my dad. Your whole family is almost a racing dynasty, isn't it? And so who was involved in racing apart from your dad? All of us. <laughs> basically yeah my bro- my, my, uh, is your mum behind the wheel <laughs> well no my mum wasn't but she was integral to the team in terms of timing and scoring so she used to sit there with two stopwatches and write down all the times do the log of every vehicle on the track with just two stopwatches so uh, she played a pivotal role in that and she made sure she made all the nice ham sandwiches that dad would only eat when he traveled to europe so um Bless her. But my wife, Lisa, you know, her family's from racing. She raced for four years herself. Her brother was the youngest Grand Prix driver for many years. Her father raced when my father raced with the Coopers. My dad started in 1948, end of 47, beginning of 48. And he uh, was an aircraft mechanic in the Royal Australian Air Force. And from a very early age, he was very, very interested in how things were pulled apart and how to put them together again. And then it was about how do you improve what you're working on? And that really drove him in his sort of engineering mechanical skills that he developed over the years. He actually had a a machine shop where an American walked in and he said, look, you know, I want to I want to build a speedway car. So Jack got involved and actually helped to build this car with a mate of his called Ronnie Ward. And they built this car for um, this American guy and he went off and did some races. But his wife convinced him it was very dangerous because, you know, there was a lot of deaths back then. And so he ended up leaving and they said, look, you know, do you want the car, Jack? So Jack took it over and actually started to race himself. You know, that's kind of where it all started for him. Can you tell us a bit more about your journey then from from karting to Formula One? How does one do that? Uh, Obviously, when I started racing, I didn't know whether or not that was going to be a career or or, or not. I just loved being out there racing, driving on the limit and and having some fun. I, I did quite well quite quickly, which I think surprised my dad. He came to a few races and could see that I could drive, which surprised him. And then, you know, started to get 
sort of behind me and then we bought a, a brand new go-kart and and kind of off where I went doing some racing but I was still working on the farm so I couldn't race every weekend like a lot of kids do I, you know it was it was you know maybe once a month I could I could get out and do some racing and then it just got a bit more serious so we actually went into a, a series called Ford Lasers which is like a one make front wheel drive saloon car like a Fiesta I guess and then it went to Formula Ford then I did some racing in America, Argentina, uh, New Zealand, Australia, around about the 86, 87 mark. Won the Australian Formula 2 Gold Star, which I was really pleased about at the time because Dad never won the Australian Gold Star. So I was like, yes, I finally got something that Dad didn't get. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, that was in front of the Formula 1 crowd. And, you know, there was a lot of momentum. And that gave me the opportunity to come to Europe to race in the Vauxhall Lotus Championship, which I absolutely hated. But uh, <laughs> the, reason, the reason for that was the cars were like two steps down compared to what I was used to. I actually lost a lot of motivation. I was actually thinking of heading home, thinking, well, this has not really worked out for me. And then um, a few people got together and put me into a Formula 3 Class B car, which was much more to my liking. And I won five of the last seven races and then got chosen to drive for the Bowman team in 89 and won the British F3 Championship, won Macau, which is the Formula 3 World Cup. That must have been a, an incredible achievement. It wasn't Schumacher, Hakkinen, Irvine, yeah. Zanardi, they were all in it. Absolutely. Yeah. All those guys, you know, all the budding drivers at that time. When you look at the list of drivers on that grid, we're talking about some of the best drivers the world's seen. So for me to have won that, uh, you know, was obviously massive for me. And it actually then put me into a place where I did Formula One the following year with the Brabham Formula One team, which was a bit of a surprise. I didn't think it would happen that quickly. And how do you think, because it's quite interesting, the difference of your dad getting into Formula One and then a few decades later, you getting into Formula One. What do you think the difference of that journey is? Is it just because a lot more people were wanting to get into F1, so there's more choice? Our, our journeys were quite different. I mean, obviously, dad was an engineer and mechanic and a driver. I was just a driver. So I had to rely more on my driving ability i had no kind of money or sponsorship behind me i've never paid for a drive i've always had to do it on my own ability where dad when he came through so he was a big asset to someone like cooper at the time he got involved there in the mid 50s and then by the time we got to 1959 and 60 he won two formula one world championships for them but he also was integral in the design putting the engine in the back of the car making it work properly be designing it, he'd be building it, he'd be building the engines, uh, and he'd be racing it on the weekends, obviously testing through the week. And during that, that sort of 60s period, you know, when my father started Brabham in 62, all the way through the, through the 60s, you know, he won another world championship in the car of his own making, which no one's ever done. Uh, but also they were the biggest racing car manufacturer in the world. So, you know, he wasn't just a driver. He was much more than that. And for me, it still staggers me to think that he could still focus in a race car in a very dangerous environment at that time, still winning Grand Prix all the way up to 19, when he was 44 in 1970, you know, racing against Jochen Rint, who was the star of the time, duking it out with him, beating him on track. So phenomenal career and impact on the sport. 
So you ended up racing for Brabham in the Formula One in 91 and then later for Simtech in 94. What was it like racing in the 90s? Because this was the, the F1 that I kind of remember growing up to and it was just amazing in my eyes. I think it's like one of the best eras. What was it like to be actually behind the wheel driving it? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time it was very very special i don't think we realize what that period is until we probably go down a few decades and look back and go wow because it is what it is at the time but for me obviously i can remember my very first grand prix which was the monaco grand prix sitting in a brabham formula one car knowing my dad had won that race in 59 i bet you had to like pinch yourself i i did a bit yeah i mean back then of course you had 30 cars going for 26 slots in qualifying so there was no guarantee you were going to make the race i hit brabham at the time when money was very short it was a little bit in a disarray that the new car the bt59 that came out was not as good as the 58 from the previous year but regulations meant we couldn't race that so we had to have the 59 and and that was a bit of a disaster but i managed to qualify you know at monaco which was a very special moment and and i think yeah absolutely when i look back at that period i, I it was fantastic racing great drivers you know senna prost mansell pk patrese boots and just fantastic drivers uh fantastic period and, and very lucky to be a part of it and what do you think of f1 now well, I'm still an F1 fan. Um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the sport has changed dramatically, I think, from when I was doing it in the 90s. You know, the money now and the way they do things. You know, back then, you know, we had a lot of DNFs in, in every race. But, you know, you hardly see it now. You know, the advancements that they've made technologically in, in Formula One with reliability is phenomenal. I mean, it's very rare you see a car break down now, which is really impressive. But a little bit more boring, I think. For me, when I look back in, in the sort of early 90s, there was still this sense of danger. The drivers had to respect the track a lot more because any mistake, you were off and, and it was going to hurt. And obviously, I went through the 94 Imola event with Roland Ratzenberg and my teammate who passed away that weekend with Senna. Today, when I look at it, and I, you know, been involved in young drivers and watching out there on track and seeing their attitudes, very different, very different. You know, the runoff area is a lot more now. There's less respect. And I think the danger element, if we take too much of that away from racing, it's no longer racing in my mind. So uh, it's a very fine balance. Apart from your dad, who have you admired the most on track? Oh, God. There's quite a few, really. Um, if you go through the decades, you know, obviously my dad, Jimmy Clark, people like John Surtees, who I thought never got the credit that he really deserved when he, you know, on two wheels and four. Uh, Graham Hill, obviously. You know, then you go through to sort of Rint, Stewart, Andretti, Peterson, um, Lauder. And I'm probably going to miss several as I go through this kind of list. But, you know, obviously James Hunt. And then you're kind of moving into the 80s with Keke Rosberg and DeAngelis, uh, who unfortunately got killed in a, in a Brabham when he was testing at Paul Ricard. And then you've got Senna, Prost, Mansell, Piquet. The period when I was racing, I think each decade just have got always got some special drivers like we have right now with Lewis and Max and Daniel. And, and you know, there's, it's always fantastic to watch them dicing it out on track. What about specific races? Do any stand out in your mind? One of the races that really sticks out, I think it was, I'm going to say Reni Arnoux and Gilles Villeneuve. 
and they were racing at Dijon, literally side by side, corner by corner, and they were like glued together. It was just the most awesome racing. That to me really sticks in my mind. Obviously watching Senna in the wet when he won his first Grand Prix in Portugal, that kind of stood out. The Monaco race that he did in the Tolman, Max Verstappen at Brazil in the wet. He and Lewis were on a different planet to anyone else, and it was just super impressive to watch. When you see people kind of dig that bit deeper and you see them in a different place to everybody else, and that's what I always like to watch. If I see a race where it's all kind of one following another and there's not a lot happening, I, I kind of switch off pretty quickly, to be fair. I like something with a bit of action, as I did when I did my own racing. You know, I always preferred having to chase the leader down to win than just leading and making it slightly more boring uh, for everybody and yourself. I, I loved a good battle on track, the tactics, all of that really did tick my box. And, and that was part of my motivation in, in going racing and, and winning was the thrill of that battle. You, of course, have had some incredible wins. So winning in 2009, you won Le Mans. And then in that year, you won the American Le Mans series. Um, and in 2010, so big, big races to win. Talk us through that. When I think back to my very first Le Mans, which was in 1992, it took me a while to win win it. <laughs> I remember that first race. If I just talk a bit about that, and this sort of shows you a little bit what Le Mans can be. I was driving for Toyota. I was the third driver. Um, didn't get a lot of time to learn the circuit before, so I, I was still learning, actually, in the race. But we actually had an accident on the start it was absolutely buckling down with rain. There was an accident on the Mulsanne Strait. Our car was involved. It came back with three wheels. And by the time we got it fixed, we were 40 or 50 laps behind. So we were out of the race, effectively. So by the time I get in the car, I'm the third driver. So I'm at pitch black at night. Thick fog. You cannot see anything. And it's still buckling down with rain. And I remember going down the Mulsanne Strait. I never got out of third gear. I had no idea what, what I was doing because I just could not see a thing. And I look back and, and I think, oh, God. And Because at the time I was thinking, come on, you've got to do better than this. So the next lap, I was flat out down the Mulsanne Strait, looking at the white lines in front of me in the middle of the road, waiting to try and see where the brake markers were, you know, the 300, the 200, the 100. Because I just didn't know where I was or what I was doing. And it wasn't a very comfortable experience, I must admit. And that was my very first introduction to Le Mans. And of course, it is a tough race. Um, and I wasn't always in a winning car as such. When I did, I, either finished, I did finish on the podium. So uh, 2003 with Bentley, I finished second in a Bentley 1-2. So that was a great experience. And, um, and then 2007 and 8 with Aston Martin, I finished first in class in GT1. And I always remember you know, standing there on the podium and you see the British fans and all the fans out there with all the flags. And it's such an amazing experience. You've just won your class. And then you get off and then the, then the winners of overall come on and you think, oh, my God, what does that feel like? And then, of course... 2009, I'm on that top spot and I'm seeing the same crowd, the same experience. And I sat down, I thought the feeling's exactly the same. It's no different. And then when I thought back about my career standing on the podium, I thought, you know what? It's not necessarily about the trophy. It's about the journey. It's that journey with, with all the teams, the teammates, your family, all those people that have contributed to you standing on that podium. To me, it was more about that than picking up a trophy and saying I'd won Le Mans. 
That's amazing. And we, we've obviously talked about your your dad quite a bit. Uh, for those who don't know, it's it's worth saying Sir Jack Brabham, three-time world champion and the only man actually to have ever won a championship in a self-made car. What was he like as a father? Uh, you know what? I think he was old school. You know, dad didn't say a lot, but when he did, it, it, it kind of went right through you. And we had a good relationship. We had times when we didn't get on. Um, I remember a time back in 87, actually, what actually inspired me, I think, to to win the Australian Gold Star event at the Australian Grand Prix support race. I had a massive argument three months before with my, my parents because uh, I had to tell them my girlfriend was pregnant. And that went down like a lead balloon for my dad because he was, you know, one, he was like, girlfriends, babies, not going to work for you as a racing driver. You have to be selfish. You have to be driven, blah, blah, blah. So, and of course, up until that point, he could see how well I was doing. And he told people, he said, look, David's the best that we've got. And he's definitely going to get to Formula One. So when I told him, oh, by the way, my girlfriend's pregnant, that didn't go down very well. And we didn't speak for three months. Yeah. Wow. So I had a terrible qualifying. I was last on the grid. Every time I drove out, the car broke down. So I never did a lap. So I'm at the back of the grid and I'm standing there with my mum and dad and I, dad's wearing a Formula One pass. And, you know, we've hardly spoken. And I, and I tried to bridge the gap and I said, oh, you better get me one of those F1 passes for when I'm in Formula One. And he just said, the days of you ever getting to Formula One are finished. <gasps> ooh, 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 ooh. I won't say what I told him because that was, I swore no. quite a lot at him. <laughs> X-rated. <laughs> it was X-rated. Yeah. Beep, 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 beep. As I'm walking Oof. off, um, and I put my headphones on, I'm listening to John Farnham, and I was in an absolute rage. And I jumped in that car, and I went from 35th to 1st in 14 laps in a 15-lap race. You're joking. Uh, I was Amazing. totally... Uh, it just took me to a completely, completely different level. I never knew existed inside me. So when I look at it, it was an absolute gift. It was a motivator. It showed me that there's so much more inside you. Some things just trigger you and you see it a lot in sport, you know, and you just have to then find another level. And that level is there. You just got to be able to tap into it. So I, I learned so much out of that experience. And I really thank my dad for doing that because I would not have had the career I had if, if I hadn't have gone through that experience. Is it difficult following in his footsteps? I think it was at the beginning because there was so much expectation. And every time you are spoken about, you're never David Brabham. It's your son of Jack Brabham, David Brabham. So you're always under the shadow in people's minds. And he achieved things that no one's done. So you know what I mean? So he's always going to be up there i think two things one i'd done enough in my career for people to sort of stop saying jack brabham's son first it's david brabham he's the son of and the other one was me feeling more comfortable in my own skin as soon as i felt that then those things didn't bother me but at, you know as as someone growing up and maturing as a person that's you get to that point where you you become comfortable with who you are and and then all of a sudden things kind of change did he ever talk to you about his contemporaries? Who did he rate as a driver in, in his era and and who did he respect most and, and why? Yeah, we did. I mean, this was, this was great about, you know, being on the farm and to engage dad in conversations, you had to talk about the old times, the old races, the old drivers. So I, I ended up getting the best seat in the house to listen to all of that. He always, you know, rated Sterling Moss as 
the number one in his mind. He just thought he was incredibly fast in anything that he drove. And dad really had to dig deep to try and beat him. He had a very high regard for Dan Gurney, who raced for Brabham and then obviously went on his own to build uh, Eagle Formula One cars and then obviously Eagle in America after that in sports cars and so forth. But um, yeah, he had very high regard for Dan. Uh, Jochen Rint, obviously, and because uh, they were teammates. and. Bruce McLaren, 1970 was my dad's last year. And a lot of that came down to that year where we lost Bruce and we lost Jochen Rint. That was it for dad. You know, he, he kind of felt it was now time for him to kind of move on because he'd lost two of his best mates and the two drivers that he respected very highly. I'm just kind of pitching these wonderful times that I definitely had sitting with my father or with my grandparents, kind of sitting, sharing these stories. As you said, you had the best seat um, to hear of these wonderful kind of moments. You're a dad now. So do they want to follow your footsteps? Do they want to follow their grandfather's footsteps? Yeah, I mean, Sam, my son Sam started karting when he was about 15 and then he did Formula Ford here in the UK and then he also did some uh, Porsche Carrera Cup races uh, did about half a season last year so he wants to continue being a third generation Brabham racing driver my older brother Jeff uh, his son Matthew uh, has been racing since the age of nine so he's done a lot more than Sam and has won championships in America done the Indy 500 uh, so yeah we, we're very strong in the third generation uh, side of it so uh, which is great you know because it just helps carry the legacy forward have you've always been keen on your son's sort of taking on the racing mantle you know what it's really funny because it's all very well being critical of ways your parents might do things but then you actually catch yourself out doing exactly the same thing um and so i wasn't that keen on sam racing and so it took him a while of bugging me and i actually was flying over to america for a race i remember sitting there and i used to love flying um you know from race to race because it was just a time to block the whole world out and just let things flow through your mind and and i just remember sitting there going oh you're just being like your father aren't you you've got to get him in a go-kart <laughs> so um Nick, when I got back, I said, right, Sam, we're going karting. So he was delighted to kind of hear that. So, yeah, it was kind of weird how that happened. But, uh, yeah, I did find myself behaving a little bit too much like my father, which I was I was probably critical of at the time. But that's how life works sometimes, isn't it? Do you think there's a lesson that you've learned from your dad that you're, you've passed down to your son? I think there's lots of lessons that we learn on that journey. But um, I remember when Sam started because I'm so competitive, I, I found myself perhaps overpowering Sam in terms of what I thought, and I needed to let him take the journey. And I think that's where my dad was really good. It was a bit like, well, there's the steering wheel. Go and learn yourself. And he would only come in when he felt it was needed. And, and that's something I had to learn to sort of back away, let him you know, stumble, let him try and find his feet, come in and, and help where I can. And and as soon as I did that, our relationship, although I've always had a very good relationship with Sam, there were times where I got fractures because I was overpowering. And as soon as I backed off at the racetrack, was, it's just like we are at home. So I, I was able to get on top of that and, uh, and improve myself so that we could get the best out of Sam. Is it fair to say now you're retired from professional racing? Uh, I know you're running Brabham Automotive, of course. Um, I had the 
honour of following the Brabham BC 62 up the hill at Goodwood Festival of Speed in 2019. Uh, it's just a really amazing thing to behold and, and hear. Can you tell us a bit more about that project and what the future holds for the company? When I was 40, I actually thought, right, okay, what am I going to do in the future? I've probably got about 10 years of driving. I'm going to get 50. I'm going to be too old, too slow. No one's going to want to employ me. So what the hell am I going to do? I thought about, well, hang on a minute. We've got this iconic racing name. Surely we should be able to do something with it. I started to look into it, discovered somebody had registered Brabham in the EU. I ended up in a seven-year legal court case in Germany to bring the Brabham name back under the family control. Once I had done that, that was on Christmas Day 2012. I just finished the season with the, in the World Endurance Championship uh, in the P1 category with JRM team. And that was my last full year as a professional racing driver. And so since then, I have been throwing myself into the next chapter of this iconic racing name. And it took a while to find the right partners to, to bring a project to life that, that warrants the Brabham name. So I actually ended up meeting a private equity group out of Adelaide, Australia, uh, which is kind of ironic because our first settlers of Brabham's ended up in Adelaide back in the early 1900s. So we ended up um, doing a deal together. They were a company that had, well, had lots of different companies in the manufacturing space, supplying to Ford, Holden, Toyota in, in Australia. Manufacturers were, were disappearing. So that meant there was going to be a massive void for the supply chain. And they wanted a kind of halo product to show the expertise of the group. Uh, we came together, created Brabham Automotive and the BT62. Uh, which obviously was was our first vehicle, um, uh, which was a high-performance track car, which now has evolved into different variants with a, a competition spec, uh, Brabham BT62, and the road variant version, the BT62R, which uh, customers will get at the end of the year, and, and more about that sort of detail will come out in the coming weeks around the, the BT62R. And we're working in the background of developing a fully homologated uh, road supercar as well, which uh, we plan to launch next year. I'm going to have to be on the phone to you after this. Yes. <laughs> I can, I can Will was suddenly like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, be, uh, I'll be testing that one for the Sunday Times. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yeah, news. so well, it's, a, it's the perfect, let's say, platform to launch the Brabham brand again, the iconic racing name. And I, I, when I thought about it 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, uh, I, was, I was thinking, how do I turn Brabham into a global brand? That was kind of what I was thinking. You know, this is the start of the next the next chapter with our exciting project uh, with Brabham Automotive. And, and obviously, we want to be racing at Le Mans in the future. So we've been working on uh, what that looks like, you know, hopefully in, in 21, 22. So, uh, you know, the racing will still live on through the project as well. Yeah, it's such a well-respected car and, you know, your family name and all that you've achieved that, um, you know, I think it's a very, very exciting project um, for all of us to, to look forward to. So well done. I'm very, very excited to see what the next 10 years looks like. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I do as well. And I'm certainly excited by it. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Um, So, right. So I'm going to get to this 
part of the podcast, um, which we've been running um, throughout all of our different podcasts, and it's called One Piece at a Time. Um, it's where we ask our guests to select one prized possession that means a lot to them and bring it to the podcast but alas we're, we're still kind of not allowed to so we're having to do it remotely because we can't all be in the same room um, so at the end of the series we're really hoping to get a, a beautiful collection together so David um, I want to know what is your piece that you've bought uh, that means a lot to you? Uh, right yeah okay well the, we, we do as a family still have Jack's uh, winning Grand Prix trophies and all the other trophies that he's got. So, I mean, that they're, they're not at home. They're actually, they're actually in Melbourne uh, in a in a small museum. So that that obviously that's a very big thing for us personally. I've never been a massive material person. I, I do have a watch that I got done with Stefan Johansson, who used to be a Formula One driver for Ferrari and McLaren, and he does his own watch range. So when I won Le Mans. I said I wanted to get a watch done. Uh, we talked about maybe doing 24 pieces. It never really happened. But what did happen is I managed to get a component out of the winning Peugeot. And on the back of the watch, you've got uh, that piece in my watch that says, you know, 2009 Le Mans. Uh, it's a David Brabham kind of Le Mans watch, which has got an engraving on the back of the watch. So that's pretty special because that, that does, that does mean something cool. to me. That's pretty cool. I think that's right up there. Would you mind tweeting a little picture or sending us a little picture of it? And then um, we, we're going to have it on, on our um, different social output, shall we say. Um, would love to see it, if that's OK. Yeah, if you send me what I need to do, that'd be great. I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah. Oh, well, listen, it's been an absolute wonderful just listening to all your stories and everything has just been a, such a delight and all I can say is thank you so much for spending this time and chatting to us. And it's just been a, a wonderful, exciting life with lots of even more exciting things to come. No, well, thank you guys for, for having me on the show. Great to share the stories with you. And uh, yeah, great. I look forward to catching up next time. Lovely. All right, I'll be on the phone to you after you this. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. Take care, my love. And as I said, right. thank you again. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Oh, what a lovely guy. Well, I mean, honestly, it must have been so difficult, kind of like in this shadow of such a prolific, incredible father and hugely successful to then try and make your own kind of footprint in the world and to get all the way to F1. It must have been, Absolutely. you know, must have been really tough, but, you know, he's done it. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't just um, up against uh, his father's reputation. His father was actively trying to keep him away from motorsport for his youth. And um, that's so interesting, isn't it, that his dad didn't want him to go into racing. And yet what you find is that these F1 drivers, they're a, they're a different breed than, you know, top Le Mans drivers. They're a different breed of human being. And once they get something in their mind, they just make it happen. Uh, and he proved through his own talent that he wasn't just the son of Sir Jack Brabham. He is David Brabham, racing driver in his own right and uh, uh, to be feared on the track. And he was racing against the best drivers in the world, you know, and to have beaten them all and to, you know, to get an F1 seat at, when it's so competitive just proves, you know, how talented he, he is. Um, so what a what a family.
Yeah, and if you don't get a seat in a top team in F1, you can still show you've got talent by, you know, your performances against your teammates. And I, I think I'm right in saying that David was, you know, outperforming his teammates throughout his career and justifiably got his rewards uh, later at Le Mans. Mm. And I'm super excited about what they're going to do with Brabham and the name and, and you know, bringing out the new cars. I think that's just going to be such a huge success. Um, and, you know, we'll keep that incredible, iconic family name going for, for years to come. Yes, the, the, the automotive side of things is great. You know, I'm really looking forward to driving the cars that come next. Um, I bet one you other are. thing that stood out <laughs> yeah, about David is that what he said, you know, it's, it's not about the trophy. It's about the journey. That's a really interesting thing to say, having achieved all he's achieved, to look back and go, you know, it's about all those people around me. And, you know, he's got that incredible network, hasn't he? But um, he, he's taken time to remember the people who got him there. Yeah, and, and what a story he's had. Um, brilliant. What a lovely, lovely man. Can't wait to see this watch. And also love to remind everyone that you can share your own one piece at a time pictures on Instagram and Facebook, or you can send it on email. On Facebook and Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, collect a car, or for email, classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. Will, thank you so, so much for co-hosting today. It's just been an absolute joy and I'd love to get you back again if that's all right. Oh, that's so kind. It's, you're very welcome. I've loved doing it. Thank you. I'd love to come and do it again. Brilliant. All right, my love. Well, listen, enjoy the rest of the summer holes and we will be speaking to each other with hopefully a very, very cool next guest very soon. And also a massive, massive thanks to all of you for listening to the latest podcast in the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. Wherever you're listening from around the world, we wish you well and sending all of our love. There'll be another episode very, very soon. And to receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, then please review, spread the word, and don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. He's Will Dron. Until next time, bye! The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance, expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.